You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Welcome, friend, to episode number 129 of the Business for Good podcast. We got a lot of good listener feedback to our last episode with Noah Weiss of Green Protein AI, probably because many listeners of the show are like me, who are people who are keenly interested in ways that technology could be used to help animals, which is, of course, what Noah and her group are seeking to do in the plant-based meat space. If you find yourself in that category of people with the same interest in using tech to reduce animal suffering, you are really going to like this episode, too. That's because, like our last episode, we have as our guest an animal advocate who's embracing technological innovation as a method of moving us toward a more humane society. Now, many times when we talk about technology that can improve animal welfare, we're talking about innovations that have either displaced or could displace the use of animals. Think, for example, about cars replacing horsepower, kerosene replacing whale oil, and animal-free meats displacing the factory farming of animals. But can technology also be used to make better the lives of animals who are still going to be used? Longtime tech enthusiast and animal advocate Robert Yeaman is betting on that idea, and he has launched a new charity, Innovate Animal Ag, designed to help the animal use industries implement such new technologies. In its first few months, the organization has already raised hundreds of thousands of dollars and is now working to implement two new technologies in particular, which could reduce the suffering of vast numbers of chickens. One is in sexing of eggs in hatcheries, and two is the on-farm hatching of chickens used for meat. With regard to the first one, you may already know that the egg industry has little use for male chicks, and this type of bird grows too slowly for the male chicks to be of any interest to meat producers. As a result, billions of male chicks are killed on the very first day of their lives at hatcheries around the world, often by grinding, gassing, crushing, or other very gruesome methods. Innovate Animal Ag, however, is proposing that hatcheries determine the sex of the egg long before hatching, so these unfortunate males are never birthed into such an unwelcoming world in the first place. We talk about this technology and also on-farm hatching of chickens used for meat in this very interesting conversation. The idea for the in-ovo-sexing of chicks really was started uh, because Germany's new legislation on this topic banning the killing of these day-old chicks. So already many egg hatcheries, not just in Germany, but in Europe, have already implemented this technology. And Innovate Animal Ag believes that producers in the U.S. will soon benefit from this European innovation as well. In fact, my longtime friend and hero for animals, Mahi Klosterhofen, the president of the Albert Schweitzer Foundation in Germany, has regaled me with details about the success that they've had in Germany passing legislation and helping the egg industry utilize this technology so that millions of chicks don't get ground up and, in fact, are never born in the first place. This is a riveting conversation with an insightful thinker and doer who's devoted his life to using technology to advance animals' interests. From starting his own cultivated meat company to working at another cultivated meat company for years to now launching his own nonprofit seeking to work with animal producers rather than just against them, Robert is someone whose opinions I'm always interested in hearing, and I think you will be too. And as you hear in this episode, he's also a great musician. So enjoy this conversation with someone who's trying hard to make a difference for animals and has been for years, Robert Yeaman. Robert, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. Excited to be here. 
I am excited to be talking with you because I learned a lot about you. I thought I knew you since I've known you for, for many years, and I've certainly admired your work. But in researching this episode, I learned that you have far greater depth than that which I knew, which related to your animal advocacy career, your career as a um, food tech pioneer. But you are also a professional singer, and you still create mm -hmm. music and put it on Spotify, which uh, my wife and I were listening to last night to some new oh. to some new smash hits that you have put out, which we will include in the links for this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But why did you leave the professional singing world? What type of a singer were you? you traveled all around the world singing? Like I, I, I imagine that many Robert Yemen fans don't know about this. So why did you leave that world? Yeah, I've, I've jumped around a lot in my career. I, I appreciate the putting the my Spotify link in the show notes. I'm sure that will be kind of like the, the, the biggest bump in listenership we get. Well, double your listeners. Well, double your listeners. Okay, but no, seriously, how'd you get into singing? I mean, it's not like you were a casual singer. You were a professional singer traveling around being paid to sing. So I was really into music kind of in high school and college. Uh, initially, I was a pianist and then I was a composer. And when I got to college, uh, I went to school in New Haven at Yale. I was a big Episcopalian community. And Episcopalians love music and they really care about the quality of their music at church. So I got a gig as a, a church singer, despite not being religious myself. And then I got more and more into the kind of classical choral singing. Uh, and eventually I, I got the opportunity to sing with this really cool uh, group at Yale called um, the El Scola Cantorum, which is a you know, professional choir that does studio recordings and tours around. And so, yeah, it was, it was a really uh, fun opportunity. We, we, sang with some great people, performed in some really cool places. It was never really my uh, career intentions. It was just something I did in college, just kind of like a, a way to make money and as an extracurricular, so, so to speak. Very cool. It's funny because a lot of the times people who are involved in like effective altruism or the animal protection movement and so on, when you ask them about their musical origins, they'll mention like punk rock or hardcore music. <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah, I was in a, in a religious uh, choir doing chorus for them. It's awesome. I, I really like it a lot. Do you still sing or at least do you karaoke? I don't sing at all pretty much, which is kind of sad. For classical singing in particular, you kind of have muscles that you need to really keep in shape. And so it, kind of, it fades if you don't do it for a while. So uh, I don't do it anymore, unfortunately, but I still, I still enjoy music and I, and I make music, you know, electronic music now. Yeah. Yeah. When I was listening to your songs on Spotify, I was surprised that there was no singing. So I, I but it is music that you wrote, which was very cool. But do you karaoke? If I go out to a karaoke bar and you're there, are you going to be singing something? Ironically, I'm not the hugest fan of karaoke, which <laughs> I, I don't know, make, it does make a lot of sense, but I like choral singing because it's a group activity. I don't so much like being in front of uh, crowd singing. It's not okay. a good thing. All right. I'll see if I can persuade you sometime. I think it would be fun. <laughs> I think it would be a lot of fun. There's many people in your social circle who are quite excellent singers who I know and have That's been true. out with. So I, I think you would, you would fit right in. But okay, you, you mentioned that you know, professional singing was not your desired professional career. But you've had a number of chapters in your uh, relatively short life. You, you seem to be about a, a third way done with your life, if all goes as planned, probably. But you've done a number of things. Uh, you know, you, I remember when you started Kieran Meats, you were hoping to be a cultivated meat uh, entrepreneur. Then you went to Mission Barns, where you were the head of operations trying to grow actual animal fat to put into plant-based products. What was it that led you to go down those paths of wanting to act, grow actual animal products without animals at the beginning of your career? So I've always really been interested in two things. The first being technology. You know, I spent 
my entire career in Silicon Valley. And I think there's a real sense of optimism and excitement about what technology can do to solve some of the big problems in our society. And then my second big interest has been animal welfare. So originally, I was interested in the cultivated meat space for that reason. You know, I thought it could, uh, it could help animals a lot to get that technology developed. What was the genesis of your animal welfare interest? Did this predate your time at Yale? Yeah, it's my whole life, pretty much. Really? You came out of the womb and you had a picket sign. You were saying, you know, fur is dead. What, 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 was, the, what <laughs> was the real genesis for you here? Yeah, let's see. It's, it's, it was a long time ago, so it's hard for me to trace my, my origin story. I, I know that I grew up well, in a very... Pre- presumably, there was some time when you decided to become a vegetarian. I, I presume you were not raised by vegetarians. Is that right? Yeah, I, I remember going on a camping trip when I was young. I was like organized by the YMCA as like a sustainability thing. And the, uh, the only thing I can remember is like having one of those moments you see in movies where like suddenly everything shifts and your perspective shifts and there's like a big montage of like all this stuff. And then something flipped and I'm like, oh, wait, like the animals that I see around me in the forest here are have feelings and experiences and, and, and they have internal lives and that matters morally. And so basically ever since then, I, I, I've cared a lot about animals and animal welfare, but I don't know exactly kind of what caused it. <laughs> it was kind of just a, Mm-hmm. Just a shift. Okay. And so, how did you first come to learn about the idea of cultivating animal cells? Like you, you were into f- technology, you were into animals, and you thought, oh, let's combine these. But I presume you must have heard or read about it somewhere. Well, your book was a big influence, uh, actually. <laughs> and um, uh, That was all a setup in the hopes yeah. <laughs> that that's what you would say. No, just kidding. No, but I'm glad. I'm glad that Queen Meat was useful for you. Yeah. I. So, my old boss at uh, Mission Barnes, Aton Fisher, who's the CEO, he was a few years ahead of me in college. We both studied philosophy. So, I, he was also a, somewhat, of a, somewhat of a career mentor for me. And I had followed his path uh, since graduating. And he ended up running the cellular agriculture division at Just, which then turned into Good Meat. And so, he was one of the first people that really told me about cultivated meat and kind of expressed to me that even though there are a few companies, it's, there's a lot to do and a lot of low-hanging fruit and a lot of approaches to try. And so he really encouraged me to you know, start a company in the space, which, which I, which I did, and yeah, just just went from there. So he was a big influence on me. And Kieran meets the idea. If I, my memory is correct, it was like you were going to be making jerky, isn't that right? Or yeah, is we, had that, this, we had this idea it? that um, a big pain point uh, for conventional meat was shelf stability, especially for like non-dried products. So we thought one of the interesting use cases for for cultivated was kind of like snacks and shelf stable items that you know because you're already growing these cells in a sterile environment, and so you potentially could have like better shelf life and create products that you couldn't make with conventional animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the idea. So that was the idea. Obviously, you're no longer doing it, so it didn't work. So what happened? What was the deficiency that led to Kieran Meat ceasing to exist? I think that there's a lot that goes into cultivated meat other than kind of your product idea uh, and the product idea i think kind of is comes a little bit later in, in a company's life cycle so I, I still think that's a kind of interesting idea but ultimately the kind of fundamental challenges of you know, uh, setting up technical operations not coming from a technical background myself raising money figuring out how to get started ended up being just really hard <laughs> and uh, yeah I had, I had a co-founder i was working with who was at base out of montreal and we ended up splitting up at one point and i just decided that I'd rather join a company than, than kind of start all over from scratch. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny having started a company myself, I've thought, hey, would that have been a better idea? Uh, because it is a very difficult thing to do. You know, look, there's like 90% mortality rate for startups and the infant mortality is especially high, which is what happened with you yeah. all. Co-founder breakups are very common, needless to say, in, in startup land. But I think now with the cultivated meat industry hitting a more difficult time uh, as there's less venture capital flowing into the space than before. We're already seeing some companies like New Age Meats uh, go under. Many other companies are doing layoffs. Do you have any predictions as to what you think is going to happen? You know, there's probably more than 100 of these startups in existence now. Some people are predicting there's going to be like a, you know, a, a near extinction level event. Other people are far more optimistic and think that things are going to come through and you'll see these products on grocery store shelves in the next several years. What do you think is going to happen? It's a good question. I don't really know, honestly. I so the the company I worked for next, Mission Barnes, I, I think also had a very smart strategy in that we were working on fat, cultivated fat as a food ingredient, because we believed that the technical challenges would be really hard to solve in the short term. And by creating products that were mostly plant based, but then use the fat as an ingredient to kind of give the products like the true meaty mouthfeel and taste. You could create products that were more, much closer to the actual thing, but not at you know, crazy price points. So I remain very optimistic about that, that approach. And I think that, you know, if uh, anyone's to survive, perhaps it's the companies that are being practical like this, but I don't really know. I don't, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> uh, I definitely didn't think that you were a soothsayer or that you knew, but I was just curious as to what you think might happen. Mm -hmm. uh, for what it's worth, you know, I I do think that there will be more fatalities in the space, but I also think that there will be companies who do cross that finish line. I wouldn't say finish line, but cross the line into meaningful commercialization. And I can't predict who they may be, but I do think that there is still a lot of reason for optimism in this space. And I do have a new edition of Queen Meat coming out in April. It'll be on oh, Simon cool. & Schuster as a paperback. So it'll be an updated version of this book, Queen Meat. So stay tuned for that. But I, I share your optimism that I, I think that some of the doomsdayers are, are, will, will be proven wrong. But we'll see. Okay. You had spent a large portion of your career seeking to improve animal welfare by creating technology to displace animal use through cultivated animal cells. Uh, now you are working to advance technologies that won't necessarily displace the use of animals, but will actually make animals' lives at least better who are being used and maybe reduce the total number of them as well in some cases as we'll get into. But why the shift? You know, a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, it was the invention of the internal combustion engine that ended the exploitation of horses. It was kerosene that helped to end the exploitation of whales. It was metal fountain pens that helped to end the exploitation of geese whose quills were used for writing. But you are looking now to do something different with Innovate Animal Ag, the nonprofit that you founded, to try to work not to replace the animal use industry, but to work with them to align incentives and try to make animals' lives better. Why? Why did you make that type of a shift? So when I left my job at Mission Barnes, I had a really strong personal sense that I wanted to give entrepreneurship another try. You know, you mentioned my previous startup that I had tried and then didn't make it as far as I would have liked. And I always kind of had a sense of like, I want to you know, prove it to myself that I can, I can do this. Uh, and so that was my intention after leaving my, my, my job at Mission Barnes. I think that, you know, as we've been talking about the alternative protein space where my bulk of my experience was is in a pretty difficult spot and I felt like there was a lot of um, companies already and not a lot of white space, not a lot of like ways to create differentiated 
companies, different technology. Also, a lot of uncertainty in the general environment with investment, with, with demand. So, I was looking for ways to apply my experience with life science and biotechnology in other areas. And this, I guess, a good transition to talk about InnovoSexing. It's a technology that I was kind of aware of for a while. And just to give a, a bit of an overview, right now, the way that eggs are made is that you know we hatch all these layers to lay our eggs. And for each layer, there's a male that was also hatched because you know, chickens are... And just to be clear, for those who weren't initiated into the egg industry, a layer is what they call a female chicken who lays eggs. They're not talking about layers as in stratification here, but there are layers are egg laying chickens, right? Okay. And in in ovo means inside of the egg. So we're talking about in ovo sexing. Why would you even want to do that? What is, what are they doing inside of this egg that would actually be beneficial for chickens? So right now, because there's no economic use for the males of the layer breed, they basically pay a human, a highly trained human, to determine the sex of the chick once it's born, and then the males are killed on the first day of life. So this is obviously like a very wasteful and, in my opinion, kind of unethical practice because we're birthing and then immediately killing so, like billions of these chicks every year around the globe. But there's this interesting technology called in ovosexing that allows egg producers to identify which eggs will be male early into their incubation, remove those eggs from the supply, and then only hatch females. So it's basically a way to avert the uh, unnecessary deaths of of billions of chicks every year. Um, What happens to those eggs that would have hatched a male chick? They are, it, it depends, but usually they are just destroyed and processed into an animal protein that goes back into pet food or animal feed or something like that. Okay. Interesting. So they would be displacing some other type of animal protein that would go into some food, whether animal feed or human food. Uh, Probably not human food, Uh, probably Mm -hmm. uh, animals, either pets or livestock. Right. Okay. So they would be, I mean, because you're talking about billions of these eggs per year, right? That's a a lot of eggs. And, you know, the demand for animal feed would have remained the same whether these eggs are hatched or not. So presumably those male eggs going into animal feed would displace something else that was going into animal feed, some other presumably animal protein that would be going in there. Potentially, although it's actually a similar supply chain to the way it currently happens, which is that the chicks are, uh, at least in the US, are, are ground up, macerated. And then processed in also into animal feed. Ah, okay. Fed back to animals. So I don't know how to compare the amount of mm-hmm. animal protein that's generated with the two yeah. setups, but it's a similar supply chain. So I don't think yeah. it makes a huge difference on the kind of downstream part. Okay, that's interesting. I, I didn't realize that. I guess I should have realized that they wouldn't just throw these male chicks into dumpsters. Mm-hmm. So, oh, okay. So this is a technology that would allow the hatcheries to determine the sex of the chick long before the egg hatches, so they don't have to hatch billions of male chicks and then grind them up alive. You argue that this is something that's viable and can be implemented today. So what is the proof of that? You know, I I know for at least as far as like I can remember, like maybe 15 years back, people have been talking about innovo sexing and startups have been making different claims about different pathways they've had to doing it. But as far as I know, it's not used in the U.S. right now. Uh, so what's the real viability of this technology and why, why would producers want to use it? So going back to kind of my personal relationship to this whole thing, when I uh, was looking for ways, new companies to start, I was interested in this technology because similar to you, I was like, I've heard about it. 
in the air for years. It's not in the US yet. So like, what's the holdup? And I assumed it was because the technology wasn't developed. So I thought maybe I could use my background in life science, biotechnology to help advance this technology. But what happened as I digged in is that I was very surprised about how far along and how good the technology already was. You know, there are a few companies in Europe who have solutions that are in the market today, sexing chicks in elbow, putting them on into the market. And they're scaling up, I think, much faster than I think a lot of people realize. Innovate Animal Lab, the nonprofit that I run now, has research that's coming out that should be published by the time this podcast launches that shows that at least 15% of the entire European layer flock has already been in Sex. And that number is growing every month as new kind of circuits come online. What's so, the motivating factor for that 15% of the European egg industry? Is it animal welfare? Is there an economic benefit to this? So it depends. It's, it's actually an interesting case study in how technology rolls out that you may be interested in, Paul. But, but initially, there was a ban on male chick culling in Germany that was done for animal, for animal welfare reasons. And that, you know, like we said, there was kind of this idea that maybe we could do this for a long time. But I think the ban, which happened within the last few years, really put an economic incentive to push this technology across the finish line and get it out into the market. So I think what we saw is that this ban went into effect at the beginning of last year, I believe. And so there are a number of technologies that started commercializing this technology within the last five years. And so a lot of the times, you know, the producers that are in Germany are implementing it because they have to. But I think the exciting part about this technology now is you're starting to see companies, no, sorry, countries that don't have bans on chick killing starting to implement this technology as well, just because the development has gotten far enough where it's now kind of in, in their incentive to do so. So it's really progressed a long way. It's amazing what a leader Germany has been in advancing animal welfare uh, on the farm um, and, and elsewhere. It's just, it's like really incredible. And I've, I've talked with Mahi Klosterhoff and the president of the Albert Schweitzer Foundation in Germany about why this is. And he does have some theories uh, about why. Um, but I, I will say it's also pretty interesting that in addition to having been a real animal welfare pioneer for farm animals, Germany is also one of the leaders in the alternative protein sector and is one of the only countries on the planet where meat demand is actually declining right now as opposed to going up. And, you know, some of the detractors of animal welfare improvements over the years have always argued, oh, well, if you make lives better for farm animals, that people will feel more comfortable eating them. Whereas it shows that in Germany, where they're making lives better, it's also at the same time, per capita demand for meat is going down, which is a pretty interesting um, real life rebuttal to that, that claim here. But I do want to ask you, like, you know, so, okay, in, in Germany, where there is a law that was requiring this, you can see that necessity would become the mother of invention. But where else is it used? You're saying that other countries are now implementing it, even if they don't uh, legally have to. But where else is it being used? And why is it not being used more if it is economically advantageous, if that's true? So it's not currently economically advantageous, but the cost increase that it entails, at least right now, is relatively minor compared to the uh, animal welfare benefits that companies can then use to charge a premium for. It's a very similar story to what we see in alternative proteins, where while the technology is early and more expensive, the challenge is to find the consumers that will subsidize that technology and allow it to come down in cost over time. So the 
reason that companies are implementing it now when they don't have to is because they believe that consumers want it, which is true, and will pay a premium for it. And over time, all technologies fall on cost, especially young ones like this. So I think it will ultimately be a commodity level technology because ultimately we're talking about automation here. You know, it's a you're replacing highly skilled humans with uh, machines. That's a really interesting claim because, uh, as you know, like I was involved very heavily for a long time in helping the egg industry try to move away from the use of battery cages and toward cage-free systems. And it does seem to me that a cage-free claim on the product packaging at least appeals to a segment of customers who are willing to pay more for that. Has there been research done showing that the same is true for eggs which come from birds who came from hatcheries where they did not grind the chicks alive? Like, I don't even know what the marketing claim would be, but is there evidence that there's a market of consumers who are willing to pay more for that? Yeah, there is. So we've actually done original survey research in this area in the US to demonstrate that were a company to decide to do it in the US, they would have consumers willing to pay that premium. So what we found is that, first of all, uh, very few people know about chick killing. Most people assume that the males are raised for meat, which is not true. But once people are educated on the issue and then this possible solution in, in ovosexing, the interest is, is quite widespread and, and, and pretty much it's a no-brainer that we should do this. The median willingness to pay for a dozen eggs that are, use this technology is just above 36 cents per dozen, so which means that half of uh, egg buyers would pay more than that. And 36 cents per dozen is the maximum price increase we've seen in Europe from this technology. So we claim that there is a pretty clear business case for, you know, the, the businesses that have the relationships with those like consumers that are willing to pay. There's a pretty clear business case right now to start using some of this technology in the US. Right. Also, I mean, you would know better than I, but it cannot be that in hatchery in ovosexing costs later down the supply chain three cents per egg, 33 or 36 cents per dozen. Like, there's no way that it's that much more expensive, right? Yeah. Because you're dealing with something so far up the production chain. So do you know what the cost per egg associated with innovosexing is or, or what the cost to a hatchery is or any other economics surrounding it? Yeah. So the, the one to three cents per egg, for, sorry, egg is a confusing term in this context. When you say one to three cents per egg, we're referring to the egg that you buy at the store. Right. Yeah. You're going to buy a dozen eggs yeah. from a, from a bird who hatched, let's say 12 months ago from a hatchery that yeah. may or may not have used this technology. So the actual impact on those dozen eggs has, has got to be de minimis. It's not, I wouldn't say it's de minimis. This is a pretty cost sensitive area, but it is quite small. So the, the one to three cents does take into account the additional margin at each state of the supply chain, right? A lot of the business models of these Innova sexing companies is to basically supply the equipment to the uh, hatchery for free and then charge on a per hen or per egg basis. And the cost increase of that is depending on what technology you're using can be like a, a buck 50 to like four dollars per hen which then you amortize over the you know three to four hundred eggs that hen lays over the course of her life so i don't want to do math live on stream here but yeah you can kind of figure out the amortized cost for that well i mean i i am doing the math uh right now <laughs> so if it's three, if the bird lays three hundred eggs and the bird costs a dollar fifty more, I mean you're talking about way less than a penny in it, way yeah. less. So I I do stand by my de minimis claim uh, <laughs> based on that. But of course, you know the the hatchery is not the one selling the eggs. Like they still have to sell chicks to egg producers who may yeah. or may not want to spend a dollar fifty more per hen. Which I, I don't know what a 
female chick costs, but I'm guessing it's pretty cheap. So it's, it's about a dollar. So it's, it's a big increase. Right, so you're more than doubling. You're more than doubling the increase then for yeah. it's pretty interesting. But okay. the, the main cost, the main cost of goods for an egg producer is not the starter chick. It's the you know feed that you get right. the chick from the day old chick to the mature right. layer. So it's, um, it's a big percent increase, but not a huge, like, um, I don't know what the word is, but hopefully it's clear. Uh, yeah, it is clear. So let me then ask you, Robert, like, obviously, you know, you're running this new nonprofit organization. You have positions that you're advocating for, like that the egg industry adopted Novo sexing to prevent billions of male chicks from being born and killed on the first day of their life. But what does the work actually entail? Right. So obviously, you know, you're doing podcasts like this. I've seen that you've written op-eds in poultry industry publications, which is fantastic. What does the day-to-day operations of look like for you in advocating for this? Are you meeting with egg producers? Are you meeting with hatcheries? Like what's the actual function of the nonprofit organization? So I assume a lot of your listeners would be familiar with an organization called the Good Food Institute that does um, work in alternative protein space. I assume that as well. (laughs) You know, myself coming from that space, they, they, GFI has done a lot of really impactful work and they've were a big inspiration for me, groups like New Harvest as well. And so I kind of describe us as the GFI of ag tech. So what that means is that we are a think tank. We produce original research uh, about which technologies in agriculture could make the biggest uh, improvement in animal welfare while also having benefits to the producer. So it's not so much of a, a fight to uh, get it implemented. Uh, we publish that research and then help you know, educate various stakeholders, the media, policymakers, and then companies themselves. So if you think about, let's say, an organization like New Harvest, and what we had their CEO, Isha Datar, on the show, we'll include that on the show notes for this episode as well at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But you know, a lot of what they do is like funding research to look into mm. the various things that are of interest to them. GFI does a lot of lobbying on public policy matters. Uh, you stated that Germany really got religion on this because of a law. Uh, are you looking to do either of those, either funding research or actually lobbying for policies in the public policy sphere that could go a long way? You know, if you look at the reason that the U.S. egg industry is on the trajectory toward going K-tree, a big part of it is the laws that were passed in states like California and Massachusetts and so on. And that's in combination with the corporate policies from McDonald's and Burger King and others demanding that their egg producers go cage-free. Seemed like the corporate policies and the public policies were two sides of the same coin. But what are you doing? Like, what's the position that you're taking? Should it be like a McDonald's that's going to demand this of their egg producers? Or are you looking at uh, trying to pass laws at the local or state level uh, where this could maybe create some real uh, conversation with the egg industry about the necessity for this? So we don't currently do any policy work or any direct funding of research. The way I think about our research pipeline is that we first find the technologies we think are going to be win-wins, you know, wins for the producer, wins for the animals. Uh, And then we figure out what the bottlenecks behind those technologies adoption is. And then we try to address those bottlenecks. So in the case of sexing, going back to my personal story with it, we felt like the bottleneck was truly the communication and commercialization piece. The, we thought the biggest issue holding this technology back was simply because companies not in Europe didn't know that it was so widely available, it was so far, far along, and that if they wanted to tomorrow, they could sign a contract and start doing this, right? So that's why we're doing kind of a lot of communications work with Innovo Sexing in particular. But 
you know, we always try to look at, you know, what is the thing holding this back, which sometimes might be communication, sometimes might be policies, sometimes might be research, and then we would uh, aim to identify and then solve those bottlenecks. What is the bottleneck? Is it that egg producers aren't demanding that the hatcheries do it or that the hatcheries aren't aware that this is an option for them and aren't marketing it to the egg producers? Like where in the chain do you need to go? It is kind of a uh, chicken and egg problem, so to speak, where you kind of have to... Nice, nice, good. You have to... It's also a similar challenge with, you know, the commercialization of of any sort of product. You kind of have to get all the stakeholders uh, on board and find the ones that are excited about it and connect them with each other. So to give you an example, you know, this technology has been in the air and this idea has been around for a long time. And I think some of the egg producers we've talked to um, are interested in it for their business, do believe that their consumers care about it and will pay premium. But, you know, maybe they looked into it a few years ago, it wasn't ready then. And they were like, all right, well, it's not ready. And so a lot of the folks we talk to are uh, literally just not aware that 15% of the layers in Europe uh, are in of a sex, which means that it's reached commercial scales and it is quickly scaling up. So a lot, yeah, a lot of the work we do is, is working with directly with egg producers. So the people that are buying the NOS yeah. equipment, and then basically they would ask their suppliers, i.e. the hatcheries for NOS X10s. And once the hatcheries start to see that there's demand, then they start to think about maybe we want to implement this in our operation. Interesting. You know, one, uh, like you're saying, seeing is believing, knowing that others are actually doing it offers the realistic possibility that you yourself can do it as well. And I remember when we were launching the big cage-free campaigns back around 2005, 2006, 2007, one of the things that we were doing back then was uh, really like sponsoring trips for US egg producers to go visit European egg producers to see their operations. Has that happened? Like, are you aware of the big egg producers or the big hatcheries actually going and visiting with these folks and maybe uh, hopefully getting inspired to make some of the changes that they see? Yeah, actually, it's not something we can pay for yet. We're a pretty <laughs> new group and we're pretty scrappy. But yeah, one of the one of the egg producers we work closely with is, is flying over to Europe to meet some of the Innova Saxon companies that we introduced mm-hmm. them to. Right. Uh, and okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be a four digit. It would be a four digit expense, not a five digit expense, to to pay for their flights over there. And I'm sure you could find some egg producers who are eager to go to the Netherlands or wherever wherever this is. But I, you know, I, I do think like there is this sense that seeing is believing, and mm-hmm. that you could find probably some willing egg producers uh, who might be interested in doing that. We, we've talked, Robert, a lot about Innovo Sexing, which uh, obviously would be a big animal welfare benefit if it were implemented. But I know it's not the only technology that you're interested in. So if you think about the world of technologies, right, most of the time people are thinking about technologies that would, you know, create the new salmon without, without fish or the new, you know, egg proteins without eggs, like what Every from, with Arturo Elizondo, who was also on the show in the past, are doing. But you're really thinking about this in a more broad sense of these technologies that if animal producers were to implement them would reduce the suffering of the animals they're raising. So what in addition to Innova Sexing do you think is a good campaign target for Innovate Animal Ag? We just launched a new uh, page on our website about a technology called on-farm hatching, which essentially is just what it sounds like. Uh, Instead of right now, what happens is that you, the chicks... And sorry, this is going to the broiler side, which refers to chickens that are raised for meat and not eggs. Right now, what happens for broilers is that they're hatched at a hatchery. They're processed, which essentially means that they're you know handled and maybe given vaccines. Maybe they're sorted by sex, and then they are transported to the the farm. Uh, 
Uh, and the transportation process and the handling process can be very difficult and very stressful uh, for chicks. You know, li- live transport is something that, you know, is, is well known for being like a very difficult animal welfare challenge. There are now companies, uh, again, in Europe uh, <laughs> that are developing technologies that allows hatcheries to instead bring eggs, incubated, or sorry, uh, fertilized eggs that are about to hatch directly to the farm so that the chicks uh, hatch like in the farm where they're going to grow. So the, the benefits to this are on the animal welfare side is that they don't have to go through processing and transportation. And they also have access to food and water right away, which they don't uh, do at a hatchery. You know, sometimes they go up to four days without uh, eating or drinking when they're, when they're hatched. The exciting part about this technology in, in my mind is also that the there's a lot of benefits to the producer, right? So they, because the chicks start to eat right away, they start getting weight faster. So it's a more kind of efficient uh, way to to raise these chicks. They also need substantially less antibiotics because they're not exposed to all the different pathogens that they would be at the hatchery and then during transport. So this is one of these technologies that's a win-win and also has some interesting overlaps uh, and synergies, you could say, with innovosexing. Sure. Um, yeah, it might even do more good for animal welfare in that, uh, you know, the the chicks who are ground alive as gruesome and grisly as that is, presumably their suffering is over within one second, right? Mm-hmm. Like the grinding process is very rapid for the yeah. most part. Whereas these chicks are being, you know, handled by humans, which I'm sure is terrifying. They're without, either hungry, they're thirsty, as you mentioned, because they don't have food or water. They're being transported in a truck through who knows what weather conditions and then shot into this farm. So, you know, it's probably like, I don't know, 24 hours of pretty unfriendly welcome to the world compared to like one second for the male chicks, which again is an animal welfare problem, but seems like on-farm hatching would actually reduce even more suffering, especially because of how many broilers there are compared to egg-laying chickens, which is uh, an order of magnitude more. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a bit of a philosophical question, but I agree. I'm very excited about this technology from an animal welfare perspective, not only because comparing the broiler side to the layer side, you know, there are so many more broilers and there are layers you know there are i think around 300 million layers in the u.s but there are billions of 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 broiler chickens that we raise so as a you know if you're thinking about the impact of a technology i think it uh, also uh, affects a lot more animals which is something we care about yeah sure and i I agree it may be a philosophical question but you have a philosophy degree from Yale, (laughs) so you must be pretty smart about philosophy but i don't think it it you know i don't think it takes a professional ethicist to think that one second of suffering is somehow comparable to 24 hours of suffering. But yes, I agree with you. And if there is an economic benefit to the producer, if the birds are going to grow faster or whatever the case may be, then, you know, that seems like maybe it'd be an easier sell than innovosexing, which costs more money, at least now. I don't know. I, I don't know if you had conversations with the U.S. broiler producers about this yet. We're pretty early on in this part of our program. You know, we just started a publishing in this area. And initially, we were interested in it because of the way it interacts with innovosexing. So, you know, we published an article recently in Poultry World that was about how on-farm hatching would generally be impossible for layers because if you hatch on-farm, then you're going to have all the males running around, which you don't want. But as innovosexing becomes more widespread in Europe, suddenly this allows egg producers to also start thinking about maybe they want to start doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, so... They're, the kind of academic literature on this is, is pretty preliminary, but the results so far seem very promising in that you also have benefits to antibiotic use, to health, and also to you know, egg production. They produce more eggs quicker. Yeah. So it's another one win. 
I saw your Poultry World article. I thought that was pretty cool. You know, for some advocates, they really want to get some of the New York Times. But for you, it's probably more effective to get it in Poultry World. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. We'll include a link to, to your article there in the show notes for this episode. Um, you've mentioned several times that European countries are more advanced on the adoption of these technologies. I presume that is because the European animal welfare movement has been pressing them more as evidenced by passage of laws in Germany and so on. Um, what are you doing, if anything, to work not just with the animal producers in the United States to try to get them to adopt these technologies, but with the animal advocates to help them make these campaigns more of a priority? You know, right now, the major campaigns relate to living conditions of animals for like cages and crate confinement of pigs and egg-laying chickens and so on. Um, but I'm not aware of any major campaigns. Maybe I'm too out of the loop to know, but I'm not aware of any major campaigns from the big animal groups on either one of these issues. So are you working with them as all? And are they doing anything? Is the animal movement doing anything on these? Yeah. So I guess one thing we try to be pretty careful about is kind of how we, uh, we, you know, we work very closely with, with farmers and with, with um, animal agriculture producers. And so we have to be kind of careful about the relationships we have with the animal advocacy side of things. I think it would make people less excited to work with us if they felt like we were then going to go to animal advocates and maybe give some, them some negative attention they don't want. Mm-hmm. I very much think of us as a, a, the, car- the carrot part of the carrot and stick equation. Um, we try to help them see why it might be in their best interest to do these things. But, for example, in the case of innovo sexing, we have done some work trying to identify, you know, animal groups that for whom like encouraging their members to buy a certain type of egg would be in their, within their mission because that wouldn't be for a lot of groups and then work with them to kind of like prepare for this product launch, which I think will happen uh, potentially next year, maybe the year after and try to make sure those eggs perform well. Cause I think that will be critical to ensuring the further rollout of the technology. So mm-hmm. we do Interesting. Yeah, I have always been the type of person who would prefer to find a way to find peace and and a way to move forward than just warmongering, right? Like for, mm-hmm. for many years, I was involved in campaigns where we really were at odds with the industries and we were fighting it out in ballot measures and in other venues and courtrooms and so on, which obviously there's a place for that. Uh, but when we had the opportunity to try to uh, forge some type of uh, legislation together with the egg industry. Sadly, it didn't become law. Um, but I do think that like, that was definitely more in my nature to try to want to find some way to work together where you can take people who are really at odds with one another and find a way to do something that they both agree on. Not to compromise on your values, but really to find some way that you can do something that you agree on. And I'm really attracted to the idea of what you're doing, Robert, at Innovate Animal Ag, because I like this idea of people who really care about animals trying to work with the producers to find some way for the for them to do better, to move things forward so that animals will be treated uh, as miserably as they have been in the past. So to that end, I wonder, you know, is there a good messenger for this? Like, you know, you, I don't know what your conversations are like with these producers, but I know that for somebody like me who has a somewhat similar background to you, um, you know, it was always a bit of a challenge for them. Um, because they viewed me as very different from them. And so, you know, it's all we always thought it was very useful to have actual farmers engaged in these battles with us and as spokespeople, because there are many who did agree with us on a lot of these key issues. Where are you on that? Are you utilizing any farmers in your efforts, in your conversations, in your messaging with the animal ag community? I would say money and business are a very uh, universal communication language. 
So the way we always try to frame things is in terms of how it might affect the company's bottom line, how it might affect the things that they care about as a business. So, you know, while we take on from hatching as an example, when we talk about it, we tend to focus on we say, yes, there's like these animal welfare benefits, but we'll devote, you know, 80% of the, our, our, our airspace to talking about here's why it lowers antibiotic use. Here's why it makes your business more efficient. So we found that just keeping it framing in terms of things that our audience cares about is, is the most effective way to do it. And, you know, we found, I think we found some good success doing that. Um, yeah, I always have said that the people who run the animal use industries are not sadistic, generally speaking. They are capitalists, right? They want to make money, no doubt about it. Um, but if they could make more money doing something else, they probably would do so, right? Like these are people who this is a business to them. Um, in fact, one of them made a, a point to me during the Prop 2 ballot initiative in 2008, where he thought that the reason he thought that we were going to win, he said, you know, to this, this is a business. To you, it's your entire moral crusade. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny because he was implying that we would work harder than them, basically. Yeah. Um, I would, I would even go a bit farther than that to say that when you're talking about a, a commodity market like eggs or, or chicken meat, even if a business wanted to do something better and wanted to invest the capital or the resources to you know, treat animals better, oftentimes the just competitive dynamics of an industry like this makes it so it's like that's like too, too hard to do. So like it would be a shame if a company like decided to do things better and then went out of business as a result, right? So I think the be- beautiful thing about technology is that it, allow, it allows us to like change the, what's possible. So it's not a matter of like relying on companies to sacrifice their competitive advantage. In fact, technology allows them to like keep that and uh, increase it while also helping animals. So that's why we focus on technology. Yeah, cool. Well, I, I do want to just also then uh, hit you with one other technology that I, I've hoped for a long time, uh, unsuccessfully hoped, by the way, that the animal movement in the US would pay a bit more attention to which is technology to end the uh, castration of piglets without mm. any anesthesia. You know, like it's, it's interesting you're talking about inv- sexing because a lot of the dairy industry is now using sexed semen so that there aren't male calves being born anymore. And, you know, there's really no deva- very, very little demand for veal. So, you know, they don't want male calves, right? They only want female calves who will produce milk. And so they use sexed mm. semen, which helps uh, dramatically reduce the number of um, male calves who end up being born. Hopefully the same will be true in the egg industry. But in the pork industry, there's basically been no movement in the United States toward ending unanesthetized castration, right? These uh, near virtually 100% of male piglets who are raised for pork in the United States have their testicles cut out of their body. I mean, it's a general mutilation. If it was done to dogs or cats, it would be a felony cruelty. If a veterinarian did it uh, to a dog or a cat, they would be disbarred and put in prison. But the pork industry can do this without you know, any risk of any uh, crime being alleged. But there are technologies to avert this, not not just pain relief, but other things too. So have you been following this? And is this something that you think might be of interest to innovate animal ag at some point as well? We looked into it a little bit. It's not an area where I would claim expertise, but we get a lot of benefit from w- working kind of narrowly. You know, both the technologies we focus on now are kind of at this intersection between hatcheries and egg producers and, uh, and farmers. Um, so I would say it's definitely something we're interested in and I've looked into. I don't have a good sense of like why it's not more common. I know there's technologies out there that can do like immune castration or, or something like that. Right. But. I, I think it's not more common because uh, people aren't aware of it. They're not thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, metal rarely bends without heat. Like somebody's got to apply some heat to bend the metal here. Sure. And 
Um, in, in my view, one of the reasons why the cage and crate campaigns have been so successful is because it is so intuitive. People know that animals don't want to be confined in a cage where they can barely move their entire lives, where they can't turn around, where they can't spread their wings. Some of the other things are a bit harder to understand. They're, they're still comprehensible, but they're a bit harder to understand than just seeing an animal in a cage who looks miserable. But everybody knows that having your genitals cut off without painkiller would be agonizing. And so I have long, again, unsuccessfully argued that the animal movement should spend more time on this. But I will, again, put it out into the airwaves via this podcast that hopefully somebody will, will take this on. That is certainly my hope. So what's next, Robert? You have been running Innovate Animal Ag for less than a year, but you've already brought in hundreds of thousands of dollars of philanthropic contributions to the organization. So congratulations on that. Where do you see yourself going? Like if we come again in 12 months from now and we're talking at the 12-month point, like, what do you think the organization will have accomplished? Yeah, I mean, we, we have so much we, we want to do. And I, and I feel like one of the things I've realized working on this project is that I think there are very few organizations and very few people that are looking at animal welfare challenges under this lens and trying to find solutions that, are, that help animals that are also practical enough to, like, get producers excited about, not just, like, okay with, but actually actively excited about, right? So, yeah, we have a lot of stuff we want to do more concretely. You know, I think interval sexing, I would bet that it will be in the U.S. within one to two years. So, ensuring the rollout and commercialization of that goes well, it's going to be a priority for us. I would love to continue to expand other technologies. You know, there's a number of things in the poultry world that we care about, but also we think a lot about the seafood area, even like pest control is something that we're interested in. We love to do some more public policy work in the future, potentially focused more on this like carrot angle. So like finding ways to incentivize producers to get the government to incentivize producers to implant technologies or, or practices that are bad for animals. So there's a lot of things we, we would like to do and that we, we have big ambitions. Great. Yeah, I think that the Inflation Reduction Act or the IRA is the greatest example ever, maybe in terms of trying to incentivize industry to act in certain ways, in this case, to adopt more clean energy practices which has been unbelievable in how it is getting so many emitters to start installing technologies that will make them greener. And so, you know, it's pretty much all carrot, no stick there. They're basically just paying companies yeah. to implement these technologies. So maybe there's something there in uh, one of these states that's going to be have an electorate that's more sympathetic to uh, animal welfare. I don't know. Oh, go on. There's, I'm sorry. There's, there's, uh, one of the interesting points about the, the sustainability thing, because yeah, I agree the IRA is, like a, is a huge example of this. When you look at polling of uh, Americans and you compare their attitudes towards climate change and sustainability and animal welfare, you actually find that animal welfare is a much less controversial and much more common sense view. You know, it's often held by 70, 80% of people, you know, these basic animal welfare positions. So I think it's very interesting that we've seen much more work on incentivizing sustainability initiatives and not so much on animal welfare. So I, th I think there's some low hanging fruit there. Right. So I, 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 I totally agree with you. Poll after poll shows very widespread and nonpartisan support for animal protection. Unfortunately, it's a very low tier issue for those voters normally. So if they have it on a ballot measure where that's the sole thing that they're going to vote on, yes or no, on this particular ballot measure, you're very likely to see success. In fact, it has a 100% success rate in every state where farmed animals have been on the ballot from a, a red state like Arizona to a blue state like California and Massachusetts and a swing state like Florida, although Florida is not much of a swing state, but it was back in 2002 when they passed their gestation crate ban. And so, you know, red, blue, purple states, they've all passed these. The problem is that 
most voters are not going to vote for a candidate based on their animal welfare platform. It's just, you know, while they might for the environment, they're not going to for animals. And so I totally agree with you. Like animal welfare, including farmed animal welfare, is a far, far more popular issue than climate change and and not partisan. But it's very tough uh, to make it an electoral issue unless it's a single issue on a measure. But hopefully that changes. I don't know. Do you have thoughts about that? I do. I I agree with you ultimately, but I do think that point is often overstated. I think oftentimes this is kind of like a broader <laughs> discussion about how public opinion interacts with policy and, and broader society. But I, the way I think about it oftentimes is like public opinion kind of defines what is possible from a policy perspective, like where people will kind of allow politicians and, and um, institutional leaders to go. And so I think one of the challenges is that like there aren't really animal welfare initiatives or proposals outside of things like Prop 12 is where people can express this concern uh, and interest in animal welfare. So, you know, one of my broader ambitions with Innovate Animal Ag is like finding ways to have ideas out there in the world, policy proposals, and just like philosophies that can capture this this interest uh, that people have, and then hopefully try to make it a bigger part of our like public discussion about animals. Because I think it's something that if there were people actively pushing it in a way that really captured this attention, I think it could be really successful. I agree. It could be. It just hasn't been so far. Um, but I agree that it could be. And, and I hope that that is what turns out to be the case. Um, I, I do think that given the increasing polarization and partisanization of American politics, it's tough for people to vote D or, you know, if they're a D to vote R, if they're an R to vote D, no matter what else. But maybe in primaries, it could be something that people would be taking into uh, consideration, the person's animal protection platform. I don't know. I, I hope so. I would I would love to see that. I am one of those types of voters myself. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, the world would be dramatically better if there were more people like me, right? Um, so. <laughs> Okay, just kidding. But I, I do want to ask you, Robert, like you've done a lot of things in your life, both starting a company, starting a nonprofit, joining as an executive, a, a startup that's fast growing. Presumably, you've given a lot of thought to things that you wish exist that don't exist yet. So are there any ideas for either for profits or nonprofits that you wish would get started that somebody who is listening right now might think, oh, that's a good idea. Let me take that and run with it. Yeah. So as a long-winded answer to that, I'll, uh, I'll throw out that one of the other things that Innovate Animal Ag does is consulting. And so we'll help grant makers, investors, policymakers kind of understand new technologies, not just our core technologies, but kind of any. That's not work that we can always talk about publicly. But over the course of those, that sort of consulting work, we have identified a number of white space ideas in this space that we're interested in. So if there are on any entrepreneurs out there who are uh, really excited about this general approach. We definitely encourage them to, to reach out to me, reach out to us. We have a job posting actually right now uh, for an entrepreneur in residence. Just to give one example, obviously AI is in the air right now. It, it's all, any, all anybody talks about in Silicon Valley. And there are, of course, lots of applications of AI to animal agriculture. One of the ones we're most excited about is applications for third-party welfare certifications. So you've already seen a lot of producers in animal agriculture start to put cameras, audio recording devices on the farm to look at things like animal health. But I think the exciting part about the third-party welfare certification approach is that for the companies that are uh, trying to do things a little better and produce these premium products, the compliance burden, the amount of paperwork they have to do to get these certifications is quite substantial. So if you can find a way to use AI, for example, 
using computer vision to like automatically determine whether a certain welfare standard is being adhered to, you can potentially have a system that is kind of better for both sides, right? It's a more effective, more transparent way to do certifications, but also it kind of lowers its compliance burdens from the producer. So interesting. I would love yeah, to see that, I mean, on that. Yeah, that's cool. I, I have always found the third-party certifying programs to be while important to be lacking because, you know, they generally involve at most like one person coming once a year to do an inspection, usually that is announced. And, you know, it's just, it's, you can only see so much when, when you go there. So I've, I think that would be a pretty, a pretty riveting thing to look at if there were some way to have more cameras and AI associated with on-farm animal care. But that's really interesting. Really cool idea. Thank you. I will note just one funny thing about inspections. So now that I run a factory making alternative meat ingredients where we you know, have inspections from like the Department of Health, and but the only inspectors who have ever come to the Better Meat Co. unannounced, and they've done it more than once, is always the kosher certifiers. Like these really? rabbis, they, these rabbis love to swing by unannounced and we welcome them. It doesn't matter to us. Like we're happy to have them there no matter what. But it's really riveting that of all the inspections that we undergo, the only ones that are ever unannounced are from the kosher people. And we don't have meat or milk in the factory, so it doesn't really matter. It's not like we have pigs running around, you know, but it is it is pretty interesting. So anyway, finally, Robert, let me ask you, what resources might you recommend? You know, you've done a lot of cool things. You've obviously are a smart, accomplished guy. Have there been resources that you have relied on that made things uh, more effective or easier in your life that you think somebody else would benefit from as well? Yeah, I was, I was thinking a lot about this. And I wanted to give something really, you know, not very well known and kind of niche and really impactful. But honestly, the thing I came back to was the kind of classic book, of Silicon Valley, which is called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christensen. I think it's an interesting, basically describes how what he calls disruptive innovation works. And I think disruption is one of the most overused and least understood concepts in Silicon Valley. It's very easy to caricature, but I think the way he presents it in this book makes it clear that, in my opinion, it's actually a very nuanced and very beautiful and very powerful theory. So I'd recommend, you know, folks who are you know, interested in innovation. Check out that. You know, it's a classic of, of the literature. And then after that, there's a blog called Stratechery that I am uh, a religious reader of. It's an author named Ben Thompson. He mostly analyzes trends in uh, tech and uh, software. But I think that the way he thinks about how businesses change, how innovation happens, it's a lot to inform my thinking in this area. So those are two. Uh, and, he, and he writes a lot about disruptive innovation too in, in a very, in a very uh, smart way. So those are two that I recommend. Okay, very cool. You know, it's funny when I first started the Better Miko, my friend Justin Silver, the, the the thing he sent me was, "You've got to read the Innovators Dilemma," and so I did. Like I did about six years ago. Uh, so it's a very popular book. We'll include it, of course, along with the blog that you mentioned, and also include the blogs that you've written, Robert, because those have been very uh, insightful for me. Whether you're writing about IP in the um, animal um, in the animal replacement space or other blogs that you've written, they've always been. Very authoritative and very useful for me, and I've I've found them to be quite helpful. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing with Innovate Animal Ag, and I very much hope to see Innovo Sexing coming to the United States along with on farm hatching, and of course your your big new passion, which is ending the live castration of unanesthetized <laughs> pigs. And look forward to seeing the progress that you make. So thanks so much for everything that you've done and continue to do to try to help make the world a place with less suffering, Robert. Thank you, Bill. 
Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves. Thank you.